delighted to be uh, joined by Matt Kennard, who is a co-founder of UK Declassified um, and author of a new book called Silent Coup. Both really interesting uh, bits of work. We're going to have a discussion um, over the next half hour or so about um, everything that's going on just now and also some of the some of the dynamics around what's going on in Gaza and Palestine and its relationship with the British state and, and the international system and everything that goes with it. Yeah, welcome, Matt, and, and thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. It's good to be here. Um, independent media is is the way forward. <laughs> well, actually, let's start there. Um, I've been following UK Declassified, I think, since close to its inception. Um, it's a really, really valuable uh, media organisation it goes to places where the mainstream outlets don't. It's got real investigative journalism going on. Yeah, do you want to say a little bit about UK Declassified and the idea behind it and 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 the role you think it plays? Yeah, definitely. So we we started it um, myself and Mark Curtis, who's a historian and journalist. He um, he wrote four or five very important books, which kind of revisited um, British foreign policy post nineteen forty five and and actually analysed it from a people's perspective and a truthful perspective instead of the establishment perspective we 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 get in it from uh, most academics and mainstream journalists. So he did a lot of important work on on that, and and we got to know each other a bit around 2018, and we both um, kind of agreed that uh, the mainstream media um, was not good across the board, but particularly bad on uh, issues related to British foreign policy and British imperialism, because the idea now, and this is from the liberal end of the spectrum to the right wing, is that the empire died uh, uh, from after the Second World War, took a couple of decades, but but it, uh, Britain withdrew from an imperial role. That's just not true at all. Um, uh, from the countless bases we've got around the world to the extremely powerful intelligence agencies like GCHQ and MI6 to the huge corporations like BAE Systems, BP, Shell, which have huge sway uh, all over the world and are, uh, are still performing an imperial function effectively. And then, of course, the city of London as well, which is kind of the centre of exporting neoliberalism around the world. So we thought that that's a massive problem in it if you've got a, a mainstream media or mass media, which is just not covering... Uh, or in any critical way, these hugely important institutions, uh, not just for British democracy, but for the world, because these 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 institutions, these companies have a global footprint. Um, and actually, the, the the one outlet which had done that previously, not it was never great, but it had done had it had did have space for critical journalism and, and really good investigative reporters was the Guardian. And uh, actually, the first article we ever did for Declassify was an analysis of what had happened to The Guardian and an investigation of that post the Snowden leaks in 2013, because that was kind of the end of Guardian as a critical outlet in terms of the security state, but also the corporations. Um, because even if you remember the early WikiLeaks release in 2010, The, the Guardian took quite a lot of risks and were pretty good. So we thought, well, if The Guardian doesn't exist anymore to do that work and, and no one else is doing it, someone needs to do it. So we thought we would create our own organisation, Declassified. Um, and <clears throat> it focuses on particularly on British foreign policy, but we also cover corporations and we also cover um, we also cover uh, City of London and, and any aspect, really, um, uh, and the intelligence agencies. 
So um, yeah, and it's been a it's been a huge success. I mean, it was uh, uh, our, our instinct that this was a massive hole in the media has kind of been bo- has been borne out over the last three four years because so many of the stories that we've done have just literally had had have had no uh, coverage at all in the, in the uh, mainstream media. Like a lot of the work we did from our inception in two thousand and nineteen up to actually quite recently was about. The British role in the war in Yemen, which is another horrendous crime, uh, uh, perpetrated principally by the Saudis uh, along with the UAE, but actually Britain was a key player, uh, not just in terms of arms exports. Forty percent of our arms go to Saudi Arabia, but also in terms of just uh, we were active players in the war. We have three personnel the UK military does inside the Saudi Air Operations Center. Um, we we're flying planes every week from a, a factory in uh, in Wharton in the north of England near Preston, a BAE factory with flying spare parts to maintain the Saudi military. So we were key players. I mean, that was a horrendous um, uh, uh, war and uh, the Saudis inf- imposed a man-made famine on uh, Yemen, which pushed 2.3 million children to the brink of starvation. I mean, the pictures that were coming out of Yemen were just horrific. And that was, it was unlike Gaza in some ways because the mainstream media weren't covering it at all. I mean, they're they're not covering the Gaza situation well, but at least it's in the paper. People are aware of a situation there. Barely anyone knows about Yemen. And and even the people that do, even less people know about the key UK role. So, and it was really important, actually, one of the, Really, what one of the proudest moments in my professional life was when um, a soldier called Ahmed Al Batati, he, uh, who again, no, everyone should know, but no one does. He was a, sol- uh, a, a, a serving UK soldier that actually, um, while he was serving, went uh, demonstrated outside the Ministry of Defence in London uh, about UK support and UK military support to the Saudis uh, in their war in Yemen, and he was arrested by military police and then discharged. Um, we interviewed him after that. We were the only uh, outlet which interviewed him. And he said that he was uh, inspired to to do that because he started reading Declassified and understanding the key role that his own his own employer, his, the UK military, was playing in, in, in the, the catastrophe in Yemen. So it, it's quite, it's, it's, it's amazing, but it's also scary when you start thinking, wow, we're, how are we the only people doing this? We're talking about such huge, uh, uh, hugely important subjects which impact millions of people and we're the only ones doing it. And so, so yeah, it's been good. I mean, we, we are small. And that's the other thing is that we, as you mentioned kind of early on, even in a sort of alternative, what's called alternative media space, we're kind of unique in that we cover stuff which goes to the, the heart of the system. There's a lot of superficial stuff. And in fact, one of the things I've learned from the, this project is that all the incentives for someone who's starting a independent media outlet are, are are pushing you in one direction, and that's to cover official enemies, so to cover Russian interference, um, and to cover uh, atrocities by official enemies, and and also to do superficial stories uh, and identity politics stories and stuff like that. No one and everyone gets a bit scared when you start saying, "Well, actually, we want to talk about what the UK military and MI6 is doing in Yemen." Um, so we are small, but partly because it works that way, but also because funders just don't want to touch us. The sort of liberal uh, foundation industry don't want to touch us um, again, which is interesting. I mean, it's these are small uh, problems, really, when you compare to, to what journalists put up with around the world. If you're in Gaza, like they've killed 50 of them. Um, and actually, I was in Palestine uh, a couple of years ago 
in 2016 and 2009 and I saw how a pa Palestinian journalists or just regular Palestinians get shot in the head if you uh if you ask a question which Israelis don't like or you go on a non-violent demonstration which they don't like so we sh uh, it's really brought home to me the fact that we have a lot of freedom comparatively and if you're not using that freedom as much as you can to expose the crimes and the criminal actions which the British state is supporting then you're not doing it right in my opinion um, and also not um, doing justice to the people that are doing that are taking far bigger risks than you to, to uncover criminal activity abroad. Yeah, I'm interested and I agree with the kind of analytical framework that's put around the British state because I think there can be a tendency on parts of the left to kind of view Britain as this kind of post-empire state, which of course it is, but kind of imagine it to be a kind of weakened actor on the global stage. Again, there are arguments you can make about that, right? But when you look at the power of the city, when you look at the power of not just the financial, but still the political institutions and so on, then it then it plays a very fundamental role. But it also plays this role as vassal state to American interests. I'm just interested in, in thinking that through. What's your feeling about the dynamic between the British state and Washington over some of the issues that you that you cover? Well, it's interesting you bring that up. So uh, that's th this subject is kind of my obsession um, because my first, I, I wrote two books before the one you mentioned in the introduction. The first one was about the U US military because I studied and lived in the States and it was about neo-Nazis and gang members and criminals which had been recruited during the war on terror. And the second one was about uh, US empire, uh, which I used reporting from my time when I was a journalist for the Financial Times in America, but also around around the world. Uh, so my interest was always in U.S. foreign policy before we started Declassified. And actually, um, it was kind of everything I've described was a bit of a surprise to me because I kind of assumed what you just mentioned. I was kind of one of those people that were like, OK, the U.K. is unimportant. It's a bit part player. It's, it's just it, it's a it's a weakened uh, post-imperial state. But actually, yeah, as you say, it's not true. And we are we basically are just the 51st state of America. A lot of work I've done, because I'm still interested in US foreign policy, so I've done a whole stream of articles about the US presence here. Um, and uh, in terms of foreign interference, uh, which, we're, which we're constantly told about in terms of Russia, um, the, the US is way above any other state, way above. I mean, we have 12,000 US soldiers permanently stationed in the UK across 11 so-called RAF sites that they're, they're, they're owned by the MOD, but they're operated by the Americans. They're effectively US sites. We also have huge amounts of um, uh, NSA and CIA personnel here. In fact, GCHQ Bude, which is the GCHQ site in Cornwall, where all the transatlantic cables go, that's effectively operated by the NSA. And RAF Crowton, which is where um, Harry Dunn was killed, by a C uh, alleged CIA uh, officer, um, RF Crowton is a CIA is the mate is arguably the CIA base in Europe. Uh, is there's apparently up to a thousand spies there. So there's an occupation of Britain by the US, and we and that's partly why we have give undying loyalty to it. But it also transposes over to the political realm as well, because um, I did a, a long, long investigation of something called the British American Project, which is a, 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 a an organization which was set up in the 1980s during the time of, when Michael Foote was 
leader, he was like the, the, the only other left-wing leader before Jeremy Corbyn, or at least non-Atlanticist leader. Um, his, his, um, his, the 1983 Labour manifesto uh, called for the, the, uh, Britain to withdraw from NATO. So he was a real threat, but basically this US embassy, so I found out in this article that the US embassy had funded the initial research to got to start the British American project. And it was quite explicitly talked about as a way of um, getting the left back uh, on into an Atlanticist position. Um, and it, and it's still around and it was, and it's still really active. Um, and it's, and, and a lot of the players who, um, who, uh, who, who became, and, and, and it focuses on progressives. So it was quite interesting. I don't know people like Benjamin Zephaniah, uh, who is, who is an advisor to declassify. So I interviewed him about, it. he was a member of it for a little while. And he just said that he was approached at the Hay Literary Festival and said, Oh, there's this nice group, um, that helps young people in America and Britain. Why don't you join? So he was like, "Why not?" And then he and then he left because he kind of half realised. And when I was telling him actually what it was about, he was he was like, "Well, yeah, uh, I'm not surprised." But that was that's how they do it. Someone like Benjamin Zephaniah is like high value target for them. It's someone on the left that could stray into anti-Americanism that they can just bring in uh, on a, and cultivate. And there's loads of them, and they focus on the progressive end of the political spectrum and Labour figures and stuff. There were huge amounts of British American project. I don't. I mean, we can talk more about that if you want, but I'm, it's probably a bit of a divergence. But what I'm, what that showed to me uh, is that the the US is directly involved in the political, in cultivating the political class here as well. And you had in 2019 actually Mike Pompeo, who was then Secretary of State, uh, US Secretary of State, and was previously the CIA director. He came and was recorded saying privately, "We will do our quote level best to stop Jeremy Corbyn becoming." Prime, uh, Prime Minister. Amazing interference. But that is how the elites in the States and in the UK see the relationship. Britain is basically just a junior partner. Britain does what it's told. Um, and Britain has no ability to make any decision which is um, uh, against US interests. Like, and, 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 and I'll finish with this because this maybe is the scariest part of it all, which is another part of the work I've been doing with Declassified is I've covered the Julian Assange case. <laughs> And Julian Assange has been in Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison in London now for <clears throat> for more than four years. Um, he's never been <laughs> convicted of anything uh, apart from a bail violation. Um, and he, uh, uh, it, it's quite scary how clearly influenced the judiciary is, the judicial process. Now, that is one of the surest signs of authoritarianism when the, the judiciary is captured by the state. And it's even scarier when it's captured by a foreign state. But it, I, I'm not just saying this. You, you can look into the. We've done reams of work on it, and you can quite clearly see that it's a. It's been highly irregular, and effectively, the judiciary is working in the interest of the Americans. So it's it's across the boards, and it's always interesting because we often everyone's interested in foreign interference. So I'm often asked like, what? How does it? How, well, who would you say? How do you break it down? And I always say, well, the US is way above everyone else. It's on a, in a different league. And then you've got like the Saudis, you've got the Israelis as well, who are hugely powerful in terms of uh, cultivating the political class. And then a lot of the Gulf states as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, it, it, I mean, just to summarize, the relationship is uh, the UK is the junior partner, but it's a junior partner in the sense that it does what it's told. Um, but we are completely occupied every part of uh, the political a military intelligence system is occupied. We are not a sovereign country. It's a, I think it's a, a conceptual mistake to think of Britain as a sovereign country because we're not. We can't take action which is against 
the interests of a foreign power, the United States. And it's quite interesting that none of the people uh, who bang on about um, being a, a British sovereignty and independence, the Brexit people, none of them ever, literally never, I don't think Nigel Farage has ever mentioned anything to do with the US control of the, the UK, um, which is way bigger than Brussels and, and whatever whatever else so yeah it's uh it's completely in, in in completely hidden and in fact all the work i've done for declassified on this subject including revealing how many troops are here and where they are and stuff not one media organization has ever written about mainstream media in fact not one mainstream media organization has ever written that there's twelve thousand troops here which is amazing isn't it you would think that maybe somewhere someone might be interested a journalist might be interested to um to, to notice that and I think that is the main, and that's another thing I've learned at Declassified, that the major way propaganda works in Britain, and I think in most of the Western world, is censorship by omission. So they don't actively lie, uh, although they do that sometimes, but that's not uh, the rigour. I think that the way that they do it is they just leave out information, not consciously, this, that's the amazing thing about it, it's all done subconsciously, but uh, they leave out any information you would have, you would need to have a tolerable understanding of how Britain works, but also how the world works. Um, and that's why our job at Declassified is actually quite easy in terms of the stories because there's so much information out there open source that people just don't look at. Um, I'll give you one example before, before sorry I'm rattling on but uh, one example was recently um, there was a uh, we dropped we my colleague Phil Miller who's a brilliant uh, reporter he dropped a story about um, uh, Britain supplying depleted uranium shells to Ukraine uh, to use against Russia um, and that was that and that went bananas that's like the biggest story we've ever done because like the morning we dropped it and then by the by the afternoon Vladimir Putin was talking about it in a press conference and said and then a couple of days after said he was stationing nuclear uh, tactical nukes in Belarus because of this uh, so it escalated massively I was sort of looking at my looking on my computer just saying Phil what have you done um, but but that was that was that was an, a, that was something that was an answer to a parliamentary question by a, by a lord and if Phil hadn't picked it up no one would have ever covered it but that just and there's so much like that that there's just stuff out there that journalists are just not interested in finding information which goes against the state line and that and 99% of the journalism we get is effectively following the state narrative um, and uh, yeah, it's quite, and that that is quite scary. Um, and it's the same with the Assange case. It's basically the same on every issue we look at. One of the things that seems to me is, if you think about the political class and the leadership, particularly of the political class, they can tolerate a debate and a discussion about whether or not railways should be nationalised, for example. But their conception of foreign policy and how it works and who makes the decisions is a completely totalizing elite project. It is for networks like the British American Project. It is for think tanks like the American Enterprise Institute. And it's for intelligence services and so on. And the population has to have nothing to do with the direction of foreign policy. And so when you see eruptions of popular mobilization, whether it's over Iraq or whether um, over uh, Palestine, what's happening today, 
there is a, a real response to it, which I think displays a kind of loss of control, a loss of that sense of hegemonizing what foreign policy means and whose interests it should be conducted uh, for. And this, it seems to me, has something to do with how the media covers foreign policy. That within the mainstream media set, who are interlinked and intermingle with the political class, there's kind of this understanding that foreign policy is something that is reserved for the people at the top of the state, for the people at the top of the political parties. And it shouldn't be a matter of public discussion, public debate. And what UK Declassify is doing is it's bringing out already public information in a way that people can understand and can relate to and can start to discuss and debate. But that it just seems to me that that is, it's just not part of the culture, certainly in Britain, uh, about about how about how it functions, but doesn't that raise massive democratic questions? I mean, just thinking about your book as well, um, or your latest book, Silent Coup. I mean, here we've got a book that's writing about the kind of corporate capture of so-called democratic institutions. So, in all of the work that you're doing, how do you appraise the impact that the way the political establishment, the foreign policy establishment, handle and conduct the affairs of state when it comes to foreign policy, impacts or degrades the quality of democracy and public debate that we have. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say that I agree with your analysis completely. Um, I think that, like you said, it's very interesting. I, th I think this is very important to look at this stuff. What are the red lines in the mainstream media? And you can learn a lot about society when you find those red lines. And even in so, if you look at someone like The Guardian, which interests me more than sort of right wing, because that's just straight, a lot of it's just straight propaganda. Now, the left wing columnists that you're allowed to have in The Guardian, they can be really good on domestic issues. People like George Monbiot, Owen Jones, Aditya Chakraborty, like they do write good stuff. But there's no anti-imperialist um, columnist. It's quite in the whole of Britain in a mainstream newspaper. I mean, they would call themselves anti-imperialist, right? But they don't write about this stuff regularly. And that is the red line. That is the red line. You can't. And in fact, the other red line is you can talk about Britain as an imperial power historically. That's even encouraged. So you get historians coming on and talking about the awful crimes at the British Empire. You can. The red line is you can't talk about the contemporary ones can't go on and talk about Yemen. You can't go and talk about the dirty war in Syria. You can't go and talk about um, the, the UK support for Gaza now. And we should come on to this, actually, because we've just done two stories about UK uh, role in, in, in the Israeli bombardment of Gaza. So I think that, yeah, it is, as you say, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's not allowed. There's a red line in the media. And it, in terms of the political system, it's just completely bipartisan. There's no difference at all. I mean... One of the things that I've, we've done a lot of work on is the, 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 the UK link to the Gulf states, the six Gulf dictatorships, and that is, goes back centuries. But that's totally bipartisan. Um, in fact, one of the most funny, well, not funny, kind of amazing stories we did was we did a whole story about how 11 British soldiers have been uh, embedded in the Saudi um, armed forces in something called the White Army, which is which is kind of the the sort of uh, the, the force that's 
from a tribe loyal to the House of Saud, and they're basically trying to protect them from a, a, any kind of coup or democratic movement which might displace them. Now, we've had 11 soldiers embedded in there to help to keep the Saudi dictatorship in power since the 60s. And that was the Harold Wilson uh, government that's that began in. And uh, uh, so all so literally every and then obviously there's the US support for the US uh, empire. There's um, uh, a support for Israel. All these are completely bipartisan. You won't find in terms of the upper echelons of the party. Um, and I mean, to answer your question, what does that mean for democracy? It means we don't have a democracy because no one knows what our government is doing around the world. Uh, no one knows who we're supporting. No one knows what we what what our ro real role is in the world. Because fu if you told if you if you explained like <laughs> I always think like you could if 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 you told a seven or eight year old uh, a few basic facts about what I just told you, right? We've had eleven uh, soldiers in the Saudi armed forces. It's a brutal Wahhabi dictatorship, one of the worst dictatorships in the world. And then you said, oh yeah, and the government's always saying. That we're spreading that we're we're spreading freedom and democracy. The eight-year-old would be like, "Well, that's bullshit, isn't it?" But the problem is, to get anywhere in the in the media or political class, you have to believe that myth. You have to believe the lies. So it's a uh, it's quite amazing. And uh, one of the one of the amazing, I think it was, I think it was last year when Liz Truss was foreign secretary. She gave a speech. Um, saying i want to uh, my my vision for britain is we're going to start a network of liberty that was a phrase around the world and then two weeks later she posted a picture with the foreign ministers of the gcc powers which is the gulf states so it was her and six and she said we are ex we are expanding and strengthening the links with our, our allies in the gulf and it was just like how if there was a functioning media everyone would just laugh her out the shop because of the contradiction it's literally in two weeks no one even mentioned it it's not problematized at all this propaganda just doesn't matter. So we don't have a democracy. I think that is a very, very, and that, that as you say, we, we, there's definitely a, a more of a democracy about domestic issues and you can talk about um, nationalization and stuff like that. I think part of that is because it's harder to hide that stuff because people see it every day. I mean, privatization and stuff like that. That's a domestic issue that's eventually, these issues are happening elsewhere. So it's much easier to bury them. But um, I think that uh, a very fundamental understanding that we need to come to is that we do not live in a democracy. We're not in a dictatorship, but we're not in a democracy. It's, it's an oligarchy. We have a an elite which rules, um, and they, uh, as you say, vast parts of the state uh, uh, function outside of any kind of accountability, um, and that is how the establishment wants it. And as you say, sometimes they lose control of the narrative, like Gaza, and sometimes they have to reveal themselves, like they had to with Jeremy Corbyn as leader. They all had to come out of the shadows, and you saw like uh, all these different elements of the state which like to stay um, uh, behind the behind the uh, veil. They had to come out and actually operate like in the open, um, like MI5 and MI6 actually briefed against him in the media. Um, and had to reveal their real function, which is kind of political police rather than what they tell us, which is to keep us all safe. So I don't, I don't know. It's it, 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 it's kind of disheartening doing the work we're doing because one, we're just ignored, um, which, but that I can take that. What The other is just that you're fighting such powerful vested interests that it's hard to see how anything will change. I mean, like the British establishment is so entrenched and they have been there for like a thousand years. You've got barons and, people who were given the land after the Norman invasion, it's literally that old. They're still controlling the land. So 
I mean, uh, I guess we are reaching a crisis point here and around the world where things uh, things can't carry on. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with your analysis. And I think that we also need to um, be braver in calling out the liberal media because there's a feedback loop that happens, which is that the Guardian gets off kind of scot-free because people don't want to lose their access to it, even on the left, you know, like they want to be able to write a comment free as article and stuff like that. So even though that they clearly are a really nefarious force and were one of the key players in bringing down Jeremy Corbyn, who was like the one chance we had for some kind of decent government for in our lifetimes, um, uh, they get away with it because people don't want to call them out. And I think that that needs to change. Um, I think that uh, the, the I think people are realizing that and actually the alternative media uh, sort of sector in the UK is one of the most exciting parts of it. And I think it's vital to, to any kind of change. And I'll just finish with this, that last year I interviewed uh, Rafael Correa, the former president of um, Ecuador uh, from 2007 to 2017. And then Eva Morales, who was the president of Bolivia from 2006 to 2019. And I was talking to them about what the problem are like, what the obstacles to progressive change, obviously they were, extremely important progressive leaders in terms of how transforming their societies during their tenure and both of them said that the biggest problem is the corporate media uh they said that they just brainwash the masses and it's very very hard to fight when you've got a population which is just fed bullshit and also fed hate and fed all the all the uh, and fed lies about any kind of progressive which might disrupt the system so um i'm that's my passion is really is media reform i think it is the prerequisite to any kind of progressive change uh, and it needs to happen with uh, it's it's definitely one of the most exciting places in the world britain for that which is which is good i mean the other thing is in terms of changing all that and i was tweeted tweet this the other day is that and i, I know you're in scotland like uh, i think that the biggest from the work i'm doing the biggest threat that the british establishment feel now or the english establishment is scottish independence that is number one by far they are panicking that because that like as we're talking about all these imperial pretensions when we're when we're we're not as powerful as we were if we lost scotland uh where we got the nukes north sea oil um there's just a historic imperial links it would be very very hard to, it would be much much harder to maintain that imperial delusion and to try and maintain that imperial control We'd have to. We may have. It may force us to be more like Sweden. I mean, I'd I'd love it. But be more like Sweden, you know, like kind of bring down the empire. Actually, start investing in our own country uh, rather than all these wars abroad. Um, so I think that uh, in terms of massive structural changes, that is what I hope will happen. Um, and if I was Scottish, I'd vote for Scottish independence. I don't know where you stand on it, but. Um, well, I mean, I'd love to have you back on and we'll have a, a wide-ranging discussion about the dynamics around independence in the British state. Um, I've written a lot about it. I'll post, um, a, as part of this podcast, a link to the to the newsletter I write um, called Independence Captured, um, which really goes into some detail about actually how, in terms of corporate influence, in terms of foreign policy influence, although Hamza Yusuf, to be fair, has bucked the trend in his calls for a ceasefire, um, that actually there are are serious problems as well that um, that you would have to think through. And actually, you know, it raises this question of sovereignty. What does it mean? How is it enacted? And I think there are real questions uh, about that when it comes to Scotland, which, as I say, I've written about, which we can discuss at another time. But I want to come on and just ask about Gaza. But, but just before I do, 
You know, I think your kind of analysis there is is extremely interesting. And I think it points to a deeper political problem that there's been on the left, which is there's a lack of independence on the left. What there has been is this feeling that they need to cling to liberal institutions, whether that's the Guardian or the European Union or other forms of, uh, of, of that kind of institution. And I think what that's done is it's blunted the, I mean, if you look at the, the kind of tradition on the left of speaking truth to power, of pursuing a, an independent line, I mean, we can look at all sorts of, of figures that have done this. And when you're speaking, it, it makes me think about the decline in, in media output. I mean, I remember when I was first getting interested in politics, and in particular in, in issues of foreign policy, I remember one of the things that got me kind of thinking was um, John Pilger um, had mm. documentaries. And these documentaries weren't, you know, difficult to access. Actually, they were shown on, on ITN. <laughs> they were shown on mainstream TV. And these were in-depth, maybe 45-minute or hour-long documentaries. You'd be hard-pushed to get that now. Though I am noticing that some of the narrative that has been developed around what's going on in Gaza, slowly but surely is being challenged more critically now, even on outlets like the BBC. And, and, and I saw an interesting piece from CNN even uh, the other evening. So I want to sort of turn to that now. What's your kind of overall assessment of where the media landscape is now and how it's evolving around what's happening in Gaza? Yeah, well, I'll just start with the general point about the media. And you mentioned John Pilger, and he obviously was a, well, is a, a a very important figure and investigative journalist, but some a young John Pilger now would not be able to work in the mainstream media. He said that he, he would not be able to make the films he made uh, for ITV um, now at all, and that is uh, that really goes to the heart of the matter, which is that the space, the media space, has become much much more constricted. Um, uh, there's very, very little space now for for dissident reporters. And actually, I don't like the word dissident. I would say tr people who are reporting the truth against corporate and state power, which is trying to mangle the truth for their own interests. There's very little, little space for that. Um, and that's an interesting discussion in itself. How that relates to Gaza, I think that... Yeah, as you say, I think people are, uh, uh, things are changing a bit in that uh, we've had 40 days of this now, you know, 40 days of just every day, massive slaughter. And every day, the Israeli government just coming out with the most ridiculous, provable lies. Um, and they, I think they're kind of breaking with it now uh, because they're humans as well. Although structurally, they're, they're, they're made to kind of uh, uh, echo Israeli propaganda a lot. I think that a lot of people are breaking because they didn't get into journalism to to, to, to echo propaganda for, for a genocidal apartheid state, which is what, I mean, I really do, I don't use genocide in a sort of, a, I use it in a literal sense. I think that's what's happening. Um, so, and I mean, the, I don't know if you saw that article a few weeks ago about how BBC journalists were like crying in the toilets because they felt so bad about how pro-Israeli their coverage is. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it will last. And I think that I, I don't. Th it's like you say. I don't think we need. I, th I think it's a mistake to put lots of effort into trying to reform these legacy liberal institutions that, like, like the Labour Party, like the Guardian, like the BBC. We need to just lock up. I think that wastes so much energy, especially the Labour Party, because 
I think the Labour Party's role is to absorb a lot of that energy and to neutralise it. Um, so I think that we need to be much more, um, have a much bigger imagination and try and work outside those. I know it's hard because there's a lot of structural impediments to doing that. Um, and I'm kind of lucky in that I have we have a freedom uh, in what we do. And I know everyone's not that lucky. So I'm not saying that everyone should should be puritanical about it. Obviously, you have to play uh, play the system to a, to a degree. But I think that this faith in the system is is wrong. And I think the young people don't feel it anymore. I think that especially what's happened, I think the Guardian's role in under Jeremy Corbyn surprised a lot of people and woke a lot of people up to the media, to the liberal media's real role. And I think that Keir Starmer's leadership of Labour has, has woken a lot of people up to what the Labour Party's role is. Because, I mean, it's, he's, I mean, it's it's just ridiculous. I mean, even, I'm even surprised. I never liked the guy and I thought he was going to be awful. But like the fact he's like agreeing with the child benefit cap, with, the, you know, with the, the Tories one. And now he's just, now he, now he's, won't call for a ceasefire 40 days into a slaughter. It's, it's people can see. The system's had to reveal itself. And in some senses, the system's had to trash itself to to get to support this war in Gaza, this genocide in Gaza. You know, like it's so clear that everything they've ever told us is rubbish. You know, that all this stuff about we represent uh, international human rights uh, and human international human rights law is very important. And we, we, we do everything by the book, you know, like bombing hospitals and schools every day. They're bombing houses, they're targeting civilians, they're killing people in hospitals, they're snipering people uh, through windows of hospitals in their beds. I mean, it's so clear to anyone who's got their eyes open what, what we're supporting that um, I don't think the system can recover. I think that the, the, the consequences of what we're seeing in terms of the psyche of the population will play out for, for decades now. Because even more than Iraq, you know, like Iraq was an awful crime. And I mean, humanitarian disaster, um, like in the aftermath, but continuing uh, for the five or six years afterward, after the invasion. But they did give lip service to the bullshit. You know, they said we are fighting for democracy and freedom. We want to, we want to free the Iraqi people. They they went through the motions of having elections and stuff like that. With 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 Gaza, they're not even giving lip service. They're going on TV and sort of advertising. The idea for tweeting their war crimes and the, 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 uh, the all these Israeli people uh, uh, officials are going on TV and, and and stating their genocidal intent on TV. Um, so I think that that's having a big effect. I think that's having a, it's, it's really the mask is off. You know, the mask is off now um, and we cut. And what we can't let happen is the think tankers, the establishment journalists and the academics to put that mask back on because they will try. They will definitely. There'll be a. They'll try and dress it all up and 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 make it make make us all uh, abide by the system and abide by the myths again. But we need to make sure that this moment of clarity, which we're all having, and and especially people like us, we probably had that clarity before. But there's a lot of people in the country, and I think in the Western world, that have a clarity which they didn't have before about how things work. We need to maintain that and push, uh, and push that because it's it's a uh, although it's a. It's a horrific tragedy that I think everyone's traumatized by. Things have got to change after this because this is as serious as it gets, you know, when we have our governments explicitly supporting the mass slaughter of children, thousands of children maiming, burned, amputated. I mean, it's a, it's a chamber of horrors. 
Um, so we need to use this opportunity to, to make a better world. Otherwise, we're failing the people of Gaza again because we've already failed them once. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay, I mean, uh, I think that feels like a good place to end this conversation. But as I say, we'd like to have you back on because there's so many different things that we could talk about. Um, you know, when you talk about Iraq there, I mean, I, I remember being highly politicised, uh, like a whole generation of people were around the invasion and uh, war in Iraq. Um, but to really find out what was going on, you had to buy books, you had to go to meetings, you had to look at documentaries, which, I mean, there's some really powerful documentaries made um, about about Iraq. In fact, I'll post some links to these as well. Uh, there's a, a really good one about Al Jazeera and uh, and how they uh, came under um, a huge amount of pressure. Um, there's ones about Fallujah and so on. But I think that you point out something that just feels like it's important, which is that we are getting information in real time. And that is, as you say, it has a kind of traumatizing, horrific effect in terms of what we're actually seeing. And at the same time, we are being able to report on this, to dissect it, to debate it. And obviously UK Declassified is going that step further because it's going into more detail and it's bringing things to public light. The other interesting thing is just to finish, there's not only a lack of debate. There's also just they don't report the the facts. Like for example, we the last two stories I've done for declassified is one one is that 33 RAF military transport flights have flown from RAF Akrotiri, which is our base in Cyprus, to Tel Aviv since the bombing of Gaza started. These are huge vehicles, A400 uh, M's and C17s, which are huge military transport vehicles. They can transport for like up to 150 troops and Blackhawk he helicopters. Um, and no one covered that story, right? Which is, again, as you say, which is a, that is a major problem for democracy. If we've got this clear war crimes, which I'm sure the ICC will investigate, well, they damn well should investigate the Israeli government and put them in prison. But we are transporting, and, and the MOD would not tell us what's on those. And not one mainstream media outlet has covered that. No, it's that, that is, doesn't exist. That fact does not exist. Again, we did one today where we revealed that the U.S. Air Force is transporting actual weapons uh, to uh, Tel Aviv using that U.K. base in Cyprus. Again, a major crisis for democracy that not one media outlet has covered it, and they won't. Some outlets have covered the first story in Cyprus, and that's what we always see at Declassified, is that we have this big impact globally. The local press report it, and it's just completely ignored in the U.K. mainstream media. Um, it's outrageous, but it's also... It, it motivates, you know, because if you, if you, if you, once you see, and I'm sure you, in the work you do, you see it as well. Once you see that they are operating as effective arms of the state, you realize that the information system needs to be liberated from these uh, mainstream media legacy institutions because they are the, the main obstacle to, to not only progressive change, but also to people having a truthful understanding of the society they live in. Because right now, we live in a highly propagandized, highly brainwashed society, um, and we need to change that. Well, um, it's been uh, really, really good to speak to you, Matt, and thanks for speaking to Conta. We are going to be expanding the number of podcasts that we do here at Conta. We've got a lot lined up. We're going to 
uh, speak to to loads and loads of different people, lots of interesting guests. And uh, yeah, that just leaves me to point people towards um, UK Declassified. Please do go and check them out and give them all the support you can for the for the vital work that they do. And we will be back with another episode very soon.